0: Uh, If you take your Bibles, please, and turn to Matthew chapter 5, we're doing a series through the Lord's Sermon on the Mount, but we're also doing a mini-series within that on the high standard of grace. And we looked a couple weeks ago, last week was Anniversary Sunday, and we had four different guys up here speaking, and if you missed, then I I thought it was a nice service, it was a blessing. All of our kids and grandkids were able to be with us, so that was fun for us, and and for some of you who remember uh, those kids when they were in your Sunday school class, right? Mrs. Mrs. Friend had uh, four of our five kids in her Sunday school class. And, and uh, so what a blessing to be able to celebrate that. But today we're focusing on the high standard of grace, part two, grace and immorality. We looked before at grace and murder. So why would I use offense, Well, because uh, in the picture, there's a broken fence. You're supposed to build fences around yourself to protect yourself. Fences around your marriage. not to isolate you from other people, but to protect you from the sin that lies within and the sin that lies without, to build fences. I'm not advocating any particular uh, policy, but I know... Vice President Mike Pence has said one of the standards he has put in his own life, he won't ride in a car with a woman that's not family. He won't have dinner with a woman that's not family. And, you know, I didn't have that standard when I was a young man. And uh, I was working and there was a lady who worked close to where, lived close to where I lived. And so we only had one car. And so a couple times we carpooled. I'd swing by and pick her up, or she'd swing by and pick me up. And then my wife said, I don't want you doing that anymore. I'll drive you to work if I need the car. And I thought, well, you know, it's almost 18 miles round trip. Is that really worth it? She said, yes. So I asked her this week, what was it that prompted her to say that? And she said, that woman gave an I'm available vibe. I missed it. You know, totally never saw that one, but she did. So, guys, one of the tools you have if you're married is your wife. <laughs> Listen to her. Uh, but uh, you, you have to build fences. And so Kathy said, you know, I would rather have to pay lots more for gas than have my husband exposed in a situation that could be detrimental to him and to our marriage. You have to build fences to protect. Now, Jesus talks about adultery and divorce, and they are huge issues. But remember, this is a little part of the bigger picture of grace. So in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 27, I'm sorry, wrong verse. Verse, yeah, my eye sought it wrongly. Verse 27 is the right verse. I just looked to the wrong place. Um, Matthew 5, 27. You have heard. Now pause there for just a moment. This is something that was common knowledge. They had heard it over and over and over. You have heard by that it was said to those of old. This is going all the way back. Now some of the things Jesus says you have heard in this passage are rabbinical teachings and some of the things are scriptural teaching and supposedly all the rabbinical teaching came from scripture but sometimes the rabbis drew lines differently than God did so Jesus is saying this we're going all the way back to the Old Testament to the Ten Commandments you have heard you should not commit adultery that was in the Ten Commandments So, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. They all understood this. Now, Jesus does something really strange, really weird in their culture. He says, but I say to you. We talked about this before a couple of weeks ago. Most of the rabbis would quote other rabbis, but Jesus speaks with authority because he's the son of God and God the son. He spoke creation into existence. He can make the rules for his creation. And he explains not just the legality of the law, but the heart of God. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, uh, that was found in part in Deuteronomy, but the rabbis uh, expounded upon it. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced or so divorced, divorced inappropriately then commits adultery. Father, as we look at your word today, I pray that you would help us to understand your heart, not just your word. I pray that I would not get in the way of what the Holy Spirit is trying to convey, but that I could be a partner with you in communicating your truth. I pray that we would listen to the Holy Spirit, follow your word, follow your spirit, and be guided to avoid pitfalls and to be preserved Um, By following your truth. Lord, speak into our hearts and lives this day, please. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, from the beginning, God planned for marriage to be one man, one woman, one lifetime. That was God's plan. God brought Adam and Eve together. uh, And he created one man with one woman. Now, sometimes, some of the Old Testament guys, they mess things up. Like Ben was sharing in his testimony talking about Abraham and Sarah. And they messed up. And so he had a child with Hagar and then a child with Sarah. That wasn't God's plan for Abraham and Sarah. King David had multiple wives. Solomon had multiple, multiple, multiple wives. That wasn't God's plan for them. God's plan was one man, one woman for a lifetime. Some of you have been married. Brian shared, how many years was it? 23 years. Uh, some of you have been married over 20 years. Some of you have been married over 30 years. Some over 40. Anybody here married over 50 years? We got a few. Anybody over 60? Just Dan and Barbara. Dan, you're old. <laughs> uh but Kathy and I have been married 38 years, just had our anniversary last month. Um, so that's God's plan. One man, one woman, one lifetime. Uh, my mom and dad were married for, I think, 56 years when my mom died. And uh, now dad's remarried. But he didn't divorce mom and remarry. He stayed faithful. Now, some of you in this room have been divorced. And I want you to understand that Jesus talks about divorce and remarriage. By the way, Jesus makes allowance for divorce if there had been unfaithfulness. If one spouse was cheating on the other, God allows for divorce. Now, I know some people in this room that I've talked with and, and uh, other people I've talked in other places, sometimes they feel guilty that they didn't work it out more. Well, Jesus said it's okay to get divorced in those circumstances. I don't think you have to beat yourself up. You're not the one who caused it. The other person is. But listen, divorce is always the result of sin in one spouse or the other or both. Always the result of sin. So uh, the Pharisees made divorce easy like our contemporary laws have done. And so they flaunted God's plan. If a Pharisee was married and he saw another woman he was attracted to, he'd divorce this woman and then he'd go marry that other woman. That's not God's plan. And so you know what they were saying? They're saying, I have not committed adultery. And Jesus says, oh, yes, you have. Jesus exposed their hypocrisy and the awfulness of lust and adultery. Uh, Almost every comedian in America, unless they're a Christian comedian, almost every comedian makes fun of pornography. Like it's the normal thing. That's what boys do. That's what some girls do. Now, it's a sin that Jesus exposes From the heart of God, he looks on it as adultery. Now, we'll clarify that in a minute. But uh, Jesus clearly says adultery is evil and grounds for divorce. But he says in Mark that God only made that allowance for divorce because of the sinfulness of human hearts. That's not God's plan from the beginning. I've had the opportunity to perform weddings. Several people in this room I've done weddings for. And that's okay. I mean, that was fun for some of them. Um, I, have, I have done weddings. I have done uh, remarriages for some who've been divorced and got remarried. And I would do it for those who were uh, abused or abandoned or uh, infidelity and the marriage was not able to be restored. But God wants us to be committed when we go into marriage. Not everybody has one that works out. We could go around the room and share heartaches from different people. But God's plan is that we stay married. If we get married, we get married with a lifelong commitment. So... um, Hebrews 13.4 says, Marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. So let's keep adultery and divorce in that setting of grace as Jesus walks us through this spiritual thinking process that was just as radical in the first century as it is in the 21st century. The first thing I want you to think about is that God is completely, eternally holy. Imagine a surgeon from the 1800s and what their surgery was like. Imagine that surgeon trying to picture the surgery today, the sanitized hospital surgery that exists today. He couldn't conceive of it. It was impossible for him to think like that. And so it's impossible for you and I to think of the holiness of God. The holiness of God. Theologians and prophets have attempted to describe it. Here's some of them. The Apostle John said, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. James described God as the father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. In Isaiah's vision. The seraphim called God holy. 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 And then Isaiah himself said. God is the holy one. Dwelling in the holy place. Absolute. Eternal. Holiness. Second thing is that. Everybody struggles with sin. Every person. Jesus never sinned, but he suffered the temptation of sin. And we have sinned, Romans 3, 23. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of his glory. Jesus was talking to men who prided themselves on not committing adultery, but they divorced readily to satisfy their lust. And Jesus said, lust and adultery are the same in the eyes of God. So there's more than 7 billion people on planet Earth today. And except for those who are in a coma, everybody's going to struggle with sin of some sort or another. Some have a lust for sexual gratification or a lust for money or a lust, a desire for power and position. They're different desires. But we all struggle. And sometimes our failure seems really small, like uh, we have been... uh, inappropriate or um, maybe we were impertinent uh, said something inappropriately or uh, sometimes our failure seems huge. A big ugly weight that weighs us down and we struggle but God understands even though he is absolute holy he understands that we struggle and every person struggles with sin. So Uh, Third thing is we have two natural responses to this struggle. The first is to excuse the sin. That's our first response. And uh, this is what the Pharisees were doing with uh, excusing their uh, lustful desires. They were technically not getting a divorce. Technically following the laws of God but they weren't following the heart of God. The other response, natural response to this sin struggle is to condemn the sinner. To condemn the sinner. (coughs) Excuse me. I was talking with a pastoral candidate who was trying to become a pastor here in Arizona. And... uh, He contacted me and wanted to talk to me about this church. And he said, what's your stand on divorce? I said, well, my primary conviction of divorce is I shouldn't get one. And and then we talked about it a little. And this is what he believed. That if you're a divorced person, you can never teach a Sunday school class. You can never sing in the choir. You can never serve in church in any way. If you've ever been divorced. That's not the standard Jesus had. In fact, when uh, God spoke through the Apostle Paul and the church in Corinth, he said, if, <clears throat> if a believer has been divorced from a non-believer, they're not under bondage. God has released them. So this guy was raising the standard higher than Jesus. Out." If you've been divorced, then you shouldn't be a pastor or a deacon because the scripture writes that out as qualifications. But it doesn't say anything about teaching a class or helping in the nursery or ministering to people. God allows broken people who have struggled with their own sin and with the sins of others to serve him because he's a gracious God. Now, we understand adultery is this big, huge sin. What would our natural response be? To condemn the sinner. Lost, however, doesn't seem like such a big deal. It, so our natural response might be to excuse the sin. But Jesus had the boldness to say that from God's perspective... Adultery and lust are not separated by this huge gap like it is in our culture, but they're like almost identical twins. They come from the same sinful heart that rejects the truth of God's Word. So, uh, based on what Jesus said here, uh, let me give you two um, cautions for wrongful thinking. Okay, number one... uh, Uh, some people think that a sin in the head or heart is not really a serious sin because nobody gets hurt and because you didn't actually do anything wrong. So, uh, if you have lustful desires, you have sinned in your head and it's just as sinful as adultery but it's not as destructive. It's easier to overcome that sin than it is to overcome the physical sin of adultery. It's it's just as sinful though. I have known many couples whose marriages have gotten beyond one spouse flirting with somebody else or an affair of the heart um, or one spouse... Was drawn away and then they got corrected and the marriage was strengthened. And I've known marriages that have endured that, uh, quite a few. Uh, I've known a few marriages that have survived a full blown affair. I don't know any that have survived long term affairs or multiple affairs. I, I don't know any. The trust has been extremely broken and it's, humanly speaking, impossible to restore. And so God made allowance for the spouse of an adulterer to divorce their unfaithful spouse. But the sin in the heart is just as serious. It's easier to get over, but it's just as serious. So there's a second wrong thing. And, okay, forgive me, but this is almost comical. I didn't believe this was a reality until I heard it once uh, in Texas, of course. But <laughs> that's for Kathy Bird. Uh, here's the second false wrong thinking. Once you have committed the sin in your heart or your head, you're already guilty. So you might as well enjoy it and just do it. <laughs> right? If God already says you're guilty, just go enjoy it. No. And yet there are young men who pull that one on young women. Hey, I've already had lustful thoughts for you. So in God's eyes, we've already had sex. So let's just enjoy it. No. No, that's not true. That's not right. That's a weird and twisted lie. It's easier to overcome a sin of the heart or the head than it is to overcome an actual uh, sin of the body. Now. Uh fourth thing here that's really kind of strange, Jesus uses an extreme illustration to show us the defilement of even the smallest sin. Pluck out your eye, cut off your hand. All right, did Jesus really want people to do this? Now, let's, let's back it up just a little bit, okay? Let's take this off of the table of what Jesus was saying, and let's look at it this way. Would it be better to lose your hand and end up in heaven than to keep your hand and end up in hell? Would that be better? Yeah. Would it be better to lose your eye and end up in heaven than keep your eye and end up in hell? Yes. So the groundwork there, what Jesus is saying is exactly true. But listen, Jesus knows that you can pluck out your eye and you can still lust. You can pluck out both eyes and still lust. A blind person can lust. You could cut off your hand and still have a greedy desire for things. It, it doesn't stop the sin. What Jesus was doing was using an illustration to describe the horrificness of sin. We in our culture have become very complacent about sin. We don't treat it that seriously. We don't act like it's that big a deal. We, we hear stories of things that people have done and, and we're not easily shocked because we've seen a lot. And we sometimes forget that the holiness of God has not been lowered at all. God has not lowered the bar. In fact, Jesus raises the bar. And and they had the it was said of old time, do not commit adultery. That's where the bar was. And then Jesus raises the bar. Even if you have lust in your heart, God views it as a sin of adultery because you have not kept your heart right before God. So Jesus is showing us the extreme difficulty and defilement that sin brings into our life. It would be better to suffer a permanent handicap than to have that sin in your life. Now, in our culture, losing one eye or losing a hand isn't that big of a deal. I mean, it happens. It would still be awkward and difficult and that, but, but it happens. I've known people who've lost a foot or a hand or an eye. Uh, But see, our church is different than their temple worship. If you came to the temple and you were missing a hand or an eye, would they let you in? No. If you went to the synagogue and you were missing a hand or an eye, you might be let in to the back corner but you would not be allowed to participate in public worship. You wouldn't be allowed to sit with the leaders. You wouldn't be allowed to uh, share anything because it was considered a defilement. Now, okay, it came originally from their desire to present sacrifices to God that were without blemish. But they corrupted it into people who had any kind of blemish who weren't holy enough to sit by them in church well it wasn't church but you know what I mean in the gathering together of worship so um, <laughs> what Jesus was saying was shocking in their culture in in our day it just sounds a little weird in their day it was shocking that they would bring a a hindrance uh, uh, to their ability to engage in the community, in in the service and in the worship. Uh, Jesus was saying, it's better to have that sacrifice than it is to not be right with God and not be able to go to heaven. So... Uh, this is one reason why I'm kind of amazed at those people who believe you can lose your salvation. Because God is so holy that even a wrong thought is viewed on the level of murder. Hatred in your heart is equal to murder by from God's perspective. Uh, lustful desire is equal to adultery from God's perspective. That God is so holy and, and we struggle, how could we possibly keep ourselves saved? We are saved and kept saved by the grace of God. doesn't excuse our sin, but if we had to keep ourselves saved, I don't think any of us would make it because God's holy standard is so high. So we need grace every day. Number five, we each... Need grace every day. Where do the thoughts in your head come from? (laughs) Honestly, can't you sometimes think in your own head? Where did that come from? Well, in Acts chapter 5, it says that sometimes Satan puts an evil thought in your head. He did with Ananias and Sapphira, and they sinned against God, and they ended up dying as a result of that. Satan can put thoughts in your head. Thoughts sometimes just show up in your head. Different things. Sometimes you smell something, and it brings back a memory from 40 years ago, unless you're less than 40. uh, That It brings back a memory from a long time ago. Just that smell. And society pressures you to think ungodly thoughts. That's advertising, the barrage of music that we listen to today. Uh, I was somewhere. Uh, I was. I went. I was look. I was in a store looking for a pair of shoes, and I had to leave. I couldn't stand the music. It was too loud and too obnoxious, and and I thought. I really wanted to buy shoes, and instead I had to almost run away from the store. So, everywhere we go, you can't even ride an elevator without having music, right? And so, our society does not allow us to have moments of silent contemplation. And those moments of silent contemplation are the times. We draw closer to God. So because of Satan and his onslaught, because of society and the difficulties we live in, you, you can be honest on your computer doing nothing wrong, never go to a bad site and a pop-up shows up that has some corrupt thing. Thankfully the software's improved and it's easier to block those pop-ups but they used to show up a lot. So I want you to think about how do you show grace to people that are struggling? And then I also want to give some ideas for those who might be the one struggling. Okay? First, how to show grace to people who are struggling. What do you think might be the first thing you need to do? Just pray for them. Not just for you to love them. Just pray for them. That's the first step. Remind yourself that God expects you to be a reconciler, right? That's a sign by God. He has given us the ministry of reconciliation with the word of reconciliation. Helping to bring men and women into right relationship with God. That's part of our job. I I want you to take your Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians 6. We'll get there in just a minute. If they were divorced or remarried... Give them the benefit of the doubt. Just assume that they had an unfaithful spouse, they had biblical grounds for divorce, and just let it go. If they tell you they were the offending spouse, then you can remind them of God's grace and the opportunity to repent and begin again. When it's appropriate, you can write somebody a note. Just say, I'm praying for you, encouraging. I think written notes have more impact than a text message or an email message, but... But don't back away from a person and don't downplay their sin. If somebody comes to you, I've had people come to me. I had a lady come to me once and said she had had an affair and she felt like she was destroying her marriage and what could she do to win her husband back? I had no idea what she could do to win her husband back, but I knew what she needed to do to get right with God. And that was the first step. And I shared that from Scripture. So you need to show his love and share his truth. Don't back away. Don't excuse sin. God does not. But look at that. This. this is really encouraging. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, beginning in verse number 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. That's just, wow, they're excluded. (laughs) But now listen to verse 11. And such were some of you. But you are washed, but you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. We need grace, and God's willing to give it. He says, all these sins that prohibit you from getting into heaven, such were some of you. When he writes in Ephesians 2, he said, you used to be those children of disobedience, but now you've trusted the Lord. And there's a change of direction and tension in your life. And so if you're talking with a person who has messed up their life, you can share this with them and say that such were some of you. God gives an opportunity to repent, to be renewed. But what if you're the struggler? What if you're the one that's caused this problem? What if you're struggling with the sin? Then I encourage you to turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. Remember what we just read in 1 Corinthians 6, but turn to Ephesians chapter 5. If you are the struggler having difficulty with sin in your life, the first thing you need to do is do not excuse your sin. Do not excuse your sin. Ephesians 5, Therefore be followers of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all cleanness, uh, all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And I'll jump down. To verse 8, for you once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. See, we have to recognize sin as sin. How many sins can be forgiven? All of them. All of them can be forgiven. Every sin mentioned in the list in 1 Corinthians 6, every sin mentioned here in Ephesians 5, everyone can be forgiven. The only person who cannot have their sins forgiven is the person who rejects Jesus Christ and doesn't trust Him as Savior. The other sins, the Lord is willing to forgive if we repent. So if you are the guilty one, then remind yourself that that's wrong. It should not be named among you. No one made you sin. You made a choice. You deserve the consequences. Years ago, I got really frustrated with my son Nathan when he was like two or three years old. So a long time ago. And I yelled at him in a loud and angry voice. And afterward, Kathy said, you were really harsh on him. And I was defending myself. Well, he did, yeah, yeah. And, And she said, wow. What happened? used to be a tough Marine. And now a two-year-old whoops you? (laughs) Now that may not be exactly how she phrased it, but that was the way I interpreted it. I mean, she really let me know. No, she was kind. She was gracious. But I saw through what she said, the Spirit of God speaking into my heart, I had blown it with my son. I would not have a relationship with that son today if I hadn't tried to correct those things and change. You can change. Such were some of you. Nobody made you sin. You accept the consequences of your choice. But you also need to allow people to speak into your life. Now, some people may just want to condemn you. That's our natural thing. We either excuse or condemn. Supernaturally, we neither excuse nor condemn. We acknowledge and we point people to the truth. We're not condemning. We're not excusing. We are acknowledging the sin and pointing people to the truth. That's a supernatural response by the grace of God. So allow people to speak into your life. Even the ones who condemn you, they can remind you of God's own hatred for sin. But then don't just look at Ephesians 5 if you're the one struggling. Look also at 1 Corinthians 6. Such were some of you. From at this point in your life, you could have all of this baggage coming to this place, to this time, to this situation. And then you repent, you turn to the Lord, you start following Him, and starting with later today, you can say, such were some of you. You leave it behind. You move toward Him. God is a God of grace and we desperately need His grace. You can ask for and receive God's forgiveness. 1 John 1, 1.9. If you know it, say it with me, please. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now let me tell you, when you are the one that sinned and you ask God to forgive you, it's hard to feel like He has forgiven you. You need to receive His forgiveness by grace. Believing God, trusting God, and accepting His forgiveness. Because what you'll have a tendency to do is you keep beating yourself up for it when God has forgiven. And if you confess The same sin, say you only did that sin once, you confess it twice, the second time you confess it, God doesn't know what you're talking about. He's already wiped the slate clean. You can't confess it again. It's already been forgiven. Receive his forgiveness. But you can also share your struggles with a trusted mentor or friend. And if you've really blown it, don't expect people to trust you. You violated their trust. Trust is earned incrementally, but it can be broken instantaneously. So you have to earn back their trust. We each need grace every day. Jesus put adultery and lust and divorce in this broader perspective of grace, the high standard of grace. Grace does not excuse sin. It acknowledges it. But by His grace, our sins can be forgiven because He's a gracious God.